John chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for hearing our prayers, for seeing our our need for salvation, and for just at the right time when we were weak and sick with sin, you stepped in and provided a way, a free way for us to have salvation and forgiveness of sins. God, we know that you've commissioned us, as we talked about last week, on what we've labeled as this great commission. God, you've commissioned us to go out and to proclaim the excellencies of you and to make disciples, to teach, to baptize. You've given us the message of repentance, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. So God, help us this morning as we study, as we talk about being obedient and living in obedience to you, and dwelling in you because of what you've done for us and what you're doing for us and what you're going to do for us. God, help us to be willing to be obedient. No matter the circumstance or situation, no matter the place or time, no matter the cost, Lord, help us to be obedient to you and to you alone, and help us to live in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If I was to give you $750,000, $750,000, if I was to give you $750,000 cash money, if I was to give that to you and, and tell you that you could only spend it on one thing, make sure that one thing was Worthy to be spent on. If I could, if you could only spend it on one thing, think for a moment what that one thing would be. Seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You can't buy a, a multitude of things. A lot of things. You can only buy one thing. What would you spend that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on? Can okay, I want you to? Quietly share that with your neighbor. Tell your neighbor who you're sitting by, or find someone close to you and tell them what you would spend it on. Go ahead, share it. $750,000, this is what I'm going to spend it. This is what I'm going to spend it on. Okay, you got your answers? Just just not by, by nodding to me, showing me by, by nodding right now. Uh, the person that shared with you, you get to judge them for a second. Are you in agreement that what they're going to spend it on is a worthy thing to spend on? It's okay to be honest. I see some no's. I see a lot of no's over here. I see some yeses or a few, a few yeses maybe. Uh, what if I told you that it cost our church about $700,000 to baptize one person? 
$700,000, about $700,000 to baptize one person. Now let me ask you this. Was it worth it? Was it worth the resources of $700,000 to baptize one person? I mean, that's reality for us. Uh, for the years of 2016 and 2017, we spent about $700,000 and baptized one person during that time. You have to decide, was it was it a worthy use of resources? The good news is this, that we fit within the average we fit within the average. Gordon Conwell's Center for the Study of Global Christianity calculated the cost of baptizing one person globally in 2014 was about $753,000. So globally, we fit into that average that it takes about $753,000. You're hearing that, right? $753,000 to baptize one person. Now, that doesn't include the cost of making that baptized person a disciple or, or teaching them the path of righteousness. It doesn't include the cost of that, but it, but it does include the cost of baptizing one person. I mean, you're thinking, I can tell, you're really thinking through this. $750,000. Man, I can do a lot of things with $750,000. Do you know how many parking lots I can resurface with $753,000? Do you know how many colored copiers I can purchase with $753,000? I can do a lot of things. Do you know how many fishing poles I could buy with $753,000? I mean, we, we count the cost often. We count the cost often. We are in the business of investing in people as a church. We have the mission to go and make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them everything that Christ taught. That is our job as a church. It's our sole purpose to make disciples of Jesus that make disciples of Jesus. We invest in people. You know, as I'm, as I'm leading you down this path right now of resources, uh, it seems as if, uh, if I was to give you $750,000, uh, I don't know, but I'm just assuming most of your answers probably were not. I'm going to make one convert of Jesus. I'm going to spend $750,000 and I'm going to disciple one person. I'm guessing there was houses and cars and maybe some kind of investment. Uh, maybe it was just uh, an unlimited supply of McDonald's. Uh, whatever the case may be, I mean, you're thinking through those things like, what am I going to do with that $750,000? In 2001, a study came out by the World Christian Trends, these guys named Barrett and Johnson, and they calculated that in the U.S. alone, in 2001, it was about $1.5 million per baptism in the United States alone. Uh, that's a lot of money thrown towards towards baptisms. But we, we would say it's definitely worth the cost for one soul to be converted to following and confessing Christ as Lord. That's our assumption. And following through in faith and believer's baptism. We're, we're assuming these things, that that's what's happening within this uh, statistic or this research. And that that money was spent towards something that has eternal uh, purpose or eternal glory to be to be shown or or seen there. Think about this though. What if you were to have all those resources, all that money, and you were to add it up over the the years, and no one came to Christ? Maybe after this morning, you feel a a call from, from God, and let's just throw you into an extreme place. 
And maybe the Lord calls you just this morning because you sing in faith and obedience to Christ as a prayer, where you go, I'll go. And so you sang that this morning with words of truth. And what if that being your prayer, the Lord says to you this morning, I hear your yes that you put on the table. Now I get to figure out the map. And on the map, I'm going to place you in Somalia. Where we know of no conversions in recent history. I'm going to place you there. I'm going to give you resources. I'm going to place you there. And let's say after, after five months, your friends and your family email you, text you, call you, Facebook you. How's it going? And just like we would treat here, how's your attendance? How's your conversion? What's your baptismal rate? Start asking you these really important questions. And then let's say after five years of being there in Somalia, you still have zero converts. And people begin to question. Maybe even your sending agency questions and says, are you even doing a good job? Are you doing what we've placed you there to do? How come you haven't had any baptisms? How come we don't have any converts? What's, what's, what's going on? What, what are you not doing? What are you not doing correctly? Why aren't these things why aren't these things happening? We begin counting the cost. We've su supported you with millions of dollars of resources and look at the outcome. No one has come to Christ. And so many of us would begin to wonder, should we pull our resources back? Should we bring the personnel out of a place like Somalia? Or should we leave them there? Continue sending resources. What... What should, we, what should we do? Nick Ripkin, this actually happened to him. He, he's an IMB missionary. I mentioned you to him last week. He's written a couple of books. I, I dare you to read them. And in his second book, The Insanity of Obedience, he talks about his sending agency questioning his work in Somalia. We've sent you all these resources, yet no one is responding. What, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing the right thing? Once you're doing the right things, we're going to start pulling our resources back. We're going to ask you to leave that place. And Nick's response was, it's not about your call, your sending. It's not about your resources. It's not about your time being spent. It's about obedience to Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus has called us to make disciples of the entire world. He's called us on this great commission that we mentioned last week to go and make disciples. And so we have to be obedient to that. Yeah, but what about the regular Christian, Pastor? What about the regular ones? What about the normal ones? I mean, you're talking about these guys that are going to Somalia. I'll never go there. Like, what about these just regular, average Joe Christians? What does obedience for us look like? Well, we've talked a lot about it. We preached a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. Put those things into action. That's what obedience to Christ looks like. Love your neighbor. That's what obedience to Christ looks like. Love one another. That's what obedience to Christ looks like. Have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what obedience to Christ looks like. There's no resource on this earth worth holding on to and keeping people away from being obedient to Jesus.
We must be obedient to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now I'm going to question you this morning because we're going to read John chapter 15 together. And I think that you have some doubts. I'm coming into this message with just the assumption that many of you in this room this morning have doubts about this scripture. Here's what it says. John chapter 15 verse 1 says this, I am the true, the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in, the, in, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Do you truly believe this to begin with? Is Christ the vine? Is the Lord God? Is he the vine dresser? And every branch that is not producing fruit, he prunes or takes away. And every branch that is bearing fruit, he prunes and shapes and molds and disciplines so that it will produce more fruit. Verse 3 says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. Okay, right off the bat, Christ says that we have to abide in him. This is where our doubts begin to surface. But, but can I love somebody else without abiding in Christ? I've seen it. It seems like it's genuine love, but is it really? Can I have joy outside of abiding in Christ? Can I have self-control outside of abiding in Christ? I mean, you know, just for a second here, as I'm, as I'm learning how to parent and, and growing in maturity and becoming a great father, right, kids? Um, I see often... Me asking, and I'm going to be real pointed right now, but me asking my unsaved children to act as saved children. I see my unsaved children, me asking them to show genuine love, genuine joy, godly self-control, when the Spirit of God does not reside in them yet. It's a difficult task. And then I see Christians who have confessed Christ as Lord who decide that their love that they've created or their joy that they've created, the feelings that they have, or the self-control that they can produce outside of Christ is a worthy fruit to produce. Because they don't truly believe, because they doubt in what Christ says here. That true fruit only comes from abiding in Christ, dwelling in Christ, living in Christ. I mean, the Greek word is a cool word. It's minnow. And it really means to remain, or it means to abide, or it means to stay, to wait, to wait for, to await. It really means to stay there until I get back. I mean, last week we talked about faithful proclamation, about Christ now being the geographic center of our lives. Hey, I'm going to leave you here, and I'm going to go to the Father. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to remain in me through the Spirit of God. Wait for me. Only move when I tell you to move. Only act when I tell you to act. Only retaliate when I tell you to retaliate. Only have anger when I ask you to have anger. Show love, show mercy, show compassion. We doubt these things. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Because I like Greek a little bit, maybe you've picked up on that. 
Nothing is a really cool Greek word. It translates into English as nothing. It means nothing. When Christ says, for apart from me, you can do nothing, he uses the same word that he used when he preached in the Sermon on the Mount, that if salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Southern Baptist world, our frame of mind. We've done it all, Lord. We've done everything we know to do. Now, Lord, it's up to you. That's terrible theology. Christ says, apart from him, you can do nothing. We begin with Jesus because he's the Alpha, and we end with Jesus because he's the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Yeah, 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 we hear that, we know that, but we doubt it. We doubt it every day. Christ says, remain in him, and then we will produce fruit. Apart from Christ, if you think that you're producing fruit and you're doing it apart from Christ, it is fake fruit. It's like my grandma who had the fake fruit on her table and you were confused by it all the time. Those look like real grapes, but as soon as you put them in the mouth, you recognize immediately they're plastic and they're fake. Real, genuine fruit only comes from abiding in Christ. For apart from Christ, you can do nothing. If we were talking back church, at some point you would have already said amen. Okay, you didn't. I told Brian just the other day that I went from as a high school student fishing for fish, then hearing the call from the Lord, and I began fishing for men. And now as a pastor, all I'm doing is fishing for compliments. So if I can get an amen back from you. Okay, thank you. We doubt this. We doubt this, and it plays into our everyday life. We would rather spend our life abiding in rewards and comfort than abiding in Christ. We would rather spend our lives asking Jesus to give us a smooth sailing than actually Christ propelling the sails with his spirit and us being led by him, remaining and abiding in him. We must have, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we must have a passion to obey and abide in Christ. Not a passion to roam and seek reward, but instead a passion to obey and abide in Christ, in Christ alone. Obediently abiding in Christ, constantly keeping our attention on Him. Keeping our attention on Him, so that when others see us, as we read last week in First Peter, they may see our good works and be pointed to Him, the one that we're abiding in. Turn to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 2. Numbers is towards the, be- the beginning of your Bible. It's right after Leviticus. Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 2, says this. We catch up with the Israelites. They've been freed from slavery. They've been led by God and his messenger Moses. God has been providing for them along the way. He's done incredible acts. They've seen uh, the power of God. They've seen the power of Yahweh or power of the Lord. They know who he is. They know that he's the I am. And then as they're wondering, as they're 
seemingly lost in the, in the wilderness, this is what happens. Verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Just a little side note here. When you begin obediently abiding in Christ and persecution or trials and tribulations come your way, one of the first things that begins to happen is you say, woe is me and woe is my stuff. They said, woe is us, woe is me. They begin looking at, oh, we're going to die, and so is our stuff. Look at our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to this place, to this evil place? You begin questioning the call of the Lord. This is how you know, on the opposite end of that, this is how you know if you can have self-reflection or introspection, when you're wondering if you're abiding in Christ and following his will, when things become difficult and you start saying, woe is me, when you start saying, woe is my stuff, and when you start questioning where you are, but it's Somalia, but it's southeastern New Mexico, but it's my neighbor, but it's my family member, but it's a church member that I'm supposed to reconcile with. You start questioning these things that are from the Lord, that have been revealed to us by his revealed word. When you start questioning those things, it's giving you a, a sense of maybe, just maybe, the Lord is the one that's leading me. It's no place, we continue in verse 5, it is no place for, for grain or figs or vine or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. See, they were looking for that comfort, that security, that moment in, in what they knew, the things that they knew that they could grab a hold of. They wanted those things, and then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, they, they went and worshipped God, and then Moses and, and Aaron, and then, then God speaks to them, and then in verse 8 says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, you might circle or underline, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their, their cattle. And Moses took the staff, from before the Lord as he commanded them. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Uh, up to this point, Moses has lived in obedience. He has followed instructions well. We would say that he's abiding in God's word. And then he says this, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Hear now, you rebels. Was that in the instruction from the Lord? See, Moses had a little unholy anger. He began focusing on his... He'd been walking with them. He heard their complaints. He heard their complaints. And he heard their complaints. And he heard their complaints. And he began letting self rise, thinking that it was about himself, thinking that about leading this congregation or leading this assembly or leading the people of God was about him. And with that, he took those complaints personal 
And a little unholy anger rose up in him, and he yelled at them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Question. And then Moses, not, not saying, Here's the instructions from the Lord, or here's what the Lord's commanded me to do. Instead, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And... Incidentally, water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. little unholy anger surfaced. Moses didn't follow the instruction of the Lord. He relied upon his own self. He let self rise up. And instead of just commanding the water to come out of the rock like the Lord had instructed, he decided to hit it with the staff a couple of times. Call the people names. And then this is, this is what happens. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in their eyes, in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Do you see how drastic that was? I mean, Moses went from being a leader, prophet, almost king. He saw God do an incredible amount of things. He understood, so it seemed, the power and the authority of God. He heard the words of the Lord and said, I want to follow through with those instructions. I want to remain in what God has decreed or God has declared. I want to abide in this holy God. I know that I should worship him and him alone. But moments of selfishness rose up. Instead of denying self and listening to what God has called him to do or told him to do, He began to trust in his own self, leaning on his own understanding, so to speak. And in that, he was disciplined, with a drastic discipline. I mean, how many feel sorry for Moses at this moment? I mean, come on, Lord, we can relate. They were complaining. They weren't listening to you. They weren't regarding you as holy. I mean, he still followed through. I mean, the water still came. You're still blessing the people. Surely, surely, surely he could receive the reward. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. We see this moment of disobedience. And unfortunately for Moses, it led to the blessing of the promised land not being his to have. Eugene Peterson says this of Christians in our world today. I've read it to you before, but I'm going to read it again. We try to to get through entertainment, to get it through entertainment. He's talking about joy. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own lives. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king, employing a court gesture to divert to divert it after an adult, over an indulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives. It never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most. And we run, when we run out of money, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. But there is something we can do, Eugene goes on to say. 
We can decide to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. We can decide to live in the environment of a living God and not our own dying selves. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos which greedily grab. Abiding in Christ means there is nothing nor no one else better than Jesus. Moses knew this, and in disobedience, he chose his own selfish desires and was punished because of it. Thanks be to God we are not Moses. Thanks be to God that we are here today as new covenant people who have been given grace and grace and grace daily. Who We have a God who who puts his son out before us so we see his beauty and we can say, I will no longer, I will no longer try and abide in this world, but instead I will hear your words that I'm a stranger and an alien to this world, that this is not my home, that I will abide in you, that I will do as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, that I will let the word of Christ richly dwell in me so I can be led by it and it alone. Back to John 15. How often do you truly doubt this passage? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you treat these words from Jesus as Moses treated the words from God? Like there is no discipline to come? Like there's no pruning to be done? Like the vine dresser won't take away those branches that are not producing fruit? Or we treat them as truth, revealed words from God for his people to listen to and respond to and faithfully live by. See, Moses, by striking the rock with anger, Moses took the attention away from God and put it on himself. And when we do not abide in Christ, we take the attention away from the one who's worthy of the attention and put it on the ones who are not worthy of it. Abiding in Christ, obediently abiding in Christ means putting the attention upon the one who is worthy of having the attention. One of the questions on the Sunday school discussion questions is, maybe you've heard this statement before, I know we've talked quite a bit about it, is partial obedience full disobedience? And if it is, how do we respond to that? Can we be brothers and sisters in Christ? And as we continue to read here in John 15 and not show love to one another and continue to act in disobedience? Can we be brothers and sisters in Christ and not try and reconcile with one another over disputes from years ago? Can we be brothers and sisters in Christ and not unite together in Christ and make making disciples our priority? Can you be a follower of Jesus and have memorized and maybe put it on a bumper sticker or on a coffee cup, seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness and yet not really do that, only seek the reward that comes with it? God, can you just give me the reward? Let me roam, let me roam and roam and roam and seek this reward and not abide in you? Can we really do that? 
Abiding in Christ means to be living in and with Christ, united with Christ. We have a union with him. It's a marriage. We as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, married to the groom of Christ. Not living in separate places, but living together in a perfect union. Set up by a perfect Savior and a perfect groom. Verse 6, John chapter 15, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Oh, yes, but our God is a loving God. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the marvelous thing about the call from Christ, the marvelous thing, the easy thing about the call from from Christ, is he doesn't say, abide in me, and you can, if you're going to abide in me, the only response to obedience is for you to move to Somalia or to go to the hard places of the world or the farthest places of the world or the unreached places of the world. But he makes it really simple for followers of Jesus. He says, abiding in me means that you will love one another. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Brian pointed out earlier Joy will not surface from things of this world. Eugene Peterson, as we read earlier, reminds us that the things of this world will not provide us eternal joy. That joy will only come from Christ and by abiding in him. We'll go on. Verse 15, or chapter 15. Uh, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 that when he says to the church there that he's been crucified with Christ, he no longer lives, Christ lives in him. This is the call in our life, that we would take up the cross, like like Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9, that we would follow him, that we would deny self, that our daily life would be us living in Christ and Christ living through us so the world can see Jesus. So the attention of our lives would be upon Jesus and not upon ourselves. Ed Stetzer says, We, as followers of Jesus, when we say Lord, we put our yes on the table and we let the Lord figure out the map. Unfortunately, if we take Jeremiah chapter 13, 
I'm going to verify that. Let me. I want to make sure I'm telling you the right chapter. That would be a fun chapter to reference, but that is the incorrect chapter. But you would you would have a lot of fun with that if I um, was to tell you to go home and read that because it's about a loincloth, about Jeremiah's underwear. How about Jeremiah chapter 18? God instructs Jeremiah about some about a potter, about some clay, and about the potter forming the clay into what he desires. Romans chapter 9 deals with a similar scenario. I feel like most people are like me and that we take the Play-Doh or the clay and we get the cookie cutter that looks like a gingerbread man and we flatten out the Play-Doh or the cookie dough or the clay or whatever it is and we use the cookie cutter gingerbread man or gingerbread woman or whatever and we form it and then we pick it up and we say, okay, this is me. Now, God, use this in the way I want to be used. I've already formed myself into who I think that I need to be. Now, please use me. And Jeremiah 18 and Romans chapter 9 says, God, the potter, the one who actually makes the clay, even forms it how he desires it. He shapes it. Maybe he doesn't use a cookie cutter. But instead, he shapes you into his likeness so that you resemble what he desires you to resemble. I mean, this is important. This is really important. It's important identifying if you are a disciple of Christ or not. Lord, shape me. Lord, change me. Lord, mold me into who I want to be. Verses, Lord, shape me, Lord, change me, Lord, mold me into who you want me to be. When we abide in Christ, I mean, Christ teaches, Luke recorded it this way. In Luke chapter 9, Christ gives this. If you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. It looks like denying self, taking up cross, and following me daily, abandoning everything else of this world, and following me, remaining or abiding, dwelling in me and nothing or no one else. And then Luke chapter 10 begins, and Jesus sends out 72 people. He sends them out with that charge. Luke 9 ends, Luke 10 begins with this charge. Hey, this is what it looks like to follow me. Deny self, take up cross, and follow me. Well, that was good for them, but in our world today, can we still use that in our context? And then he gets to, in Luke chapter 10, he gets to the story of the Good Samaritan. What does it look like to follow the commandments of Jesus? What does it look like to abide in Christ? How about this week? Try loving your neighbor. Whoever that is. How about this week saying, Lord, when, when I hear these words from John chapter 15, that I can do nothing apart from you, Lord, here I am on a Monday morning, trusting that apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, don't let me have the, the idea anymore that I'm going to do everything I can and the bad theology. I'm going to do everything I can up to a certain point where I recognize I can't do anything else and so you're going to come in and you're going to rescue, or sit, rescue me and save the day. But instead, let me see that today has been saved by you and not by me or anything I can do. So because of that, because you're the only one that can save the day, let me abide in you 
Let your words richly dwell in me so that I can produce the fruit as a disciple of you that you desire for me to produce. Put your yes on the table. Let God figure out the map or the neighbor or the language or the skin color or the country. Let him decide those things and you'll be obedient to Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm wrestling this morning in my own spirit here. Because I know how difficult these words are. And I know there's no magic formula. Lord, I, as a helper or equipper, I want to just give easy steps and tools, but... I guess simply stated, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so help us as disciples, those who have confessed Christ as Lord, put our faith in him, who have repented. Help us to see that apart from you, we can do nothing. So let us be obediently abiding in you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Offer time of invitation where you get to respond. You get to, uh, uh, this is the moment where uh, Fox News' statement is, uh, we report, you decide. And so now you get to decide. Are these words from the Lord? And if they are, how do you respond to them? How are you going to abide in Christ? How are you going to take the words that he said? Apart from him, you can do nothing. And what are you going to do with those words? Let's stand, let's sing together.